1: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
2: It is a joy to be publishing The Death of Vivek Oji. And, and I wondered if we could start by talking a little bit about Vivek himself. Where did he come from? How did you find him? How do your characters arrive with you? Because he's, he's sort of luminescent, I think, in his sort of beauty and
1: gorgeousness. I decided that he was dead before I decided anything else. So I think I met him first as the Vivek that's beyond the grave. And I think that his personality kind of blossomed out from that because, you know, once you're transitioned out of this life, he becomes this really, like, peaceful kind of person. And then I kind of worked backwards from that. So you see when he's talking from spirit world, essentially, that, you know, he's very at peace, he's very gentle, and then you can see that kind of work backwards to when he's younger and he's getting into fights a lot, and that kind of informed, I think, the progression of his personality.
2: Wonderful, so the the very fact of his death was freeing, because I think that's probably something that might surprise both sort of readers and, and people who think about constructing a narrative. You know, saying here's a character and they're dead might seem like a limiting way to start. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, it turned, out, it turned out not to be, you know. It, it gave me a lot of space to to think about him, both in the moments that he was alive and then also who he was in his absence, because, you know, he's so loud in the book, whether it's in the parts where he's alive or whether it's in the parts of the book after he's passed, his presence is there even in his absence.
2: And it's a very powerful presence because it's also in the way that I think people will find sort of incredibly accessible. It's a contested space in the way that, you know, grief and love and these like, these ideas, that these narratives that we have about the people that we love and that become part of our sort of struggle to own them in some ways. Was that something that you were interested in exploring, that sense of the contested space of the self and how the, this community tries to sort of co-opt him or release him in different ways?
1: Yeah, because it's like, are you who you are when you're by yourself? Are you who you are when you're with your closest friends? And this idea of self is so mutable depending on which context we're talking about. Oh, are you the sum of everything else? If you add all those bits up together, do you get an, an entire self? And I think I wanted Vivek to kind of show that it could be a shifting self. You know, He wasn't more authentic in some spaces than others. He was actually one of the most you know, authentic people in the book in terms of how he expressed himself, in terms of how fearless he was to look at himself and move through the world, even if everyone else around him was terrified. He was like, well, this is still me and I'm still going to do this and everyone will just have to get used to it.
2: And that sort of incredible strength and that he's quite a constant in that way. And was that technically when you were constructing the novel? Because it shifts through time and like you say, you start of the death and then essentially the reader sort of comes to to love him and and then to grieve for him as the others are grieving at the opening. Technically, were you interested in playing with time and in the narrative and how you told it?
1: I think I tend to write non-linear by default. Like, I think it's really hard for me to write in a linear way. (laughs) You know, when I wrote *Pets*, my young adult novel, I was like, oh my goodness, one narrator, (laughs) Was moving through time in (laughs) linear chronological order. It was so hard. (laughs) So with all my like adult fiction, it always you know jumps around time. It always jumps around perspectives, and that's what feels you know intuitively right for me. With Vivek, it's two timelines that are kind of braided together. One from when he was born, moving in that order, and then one after he dies, and then they kind of just splice with each other but through it all I think of him as like the anchor like he's Mm. the point that everyone kind of gravitates to or gravitates around and so yeah he's definitely a constant in that sense
2: absolutely and and another presence who I'm kind of slightly obsessed with is his grandmother who actually also seems to me to be a very strong presence is that and it's not giving anything away so that his grandmother also dies at the beginning of the work is that that those relationships those familial relationships across time those those bonds that we have with people we you know with perhaps grandparents we didn't know or or, or that sort of spiritual connection that's something that you were also exploring here right is that
1: yeah i think family is a huge part of that you know and for a lot of people family also includes like the lineage the ancestors and the spiritual ties that run between all of that and you know a lot of the book is about what happens if you know his parents don't talk about his grandmother they don't talk to him about it they are you know really traumatized by her death and and i think that's not necessarily to the next benefit like i think it would have been a bit easier for him if they had kind of talked about it to him so you can you see what it looks like for a child to be a little cut off from mm. That lineage from that concept of family, like going back over
2: the generations. So interesting. It makes me think to, something I actually wanted to ask you about. But also, yeah, uh, when I first and I remember where I was when I first read this novel. But um, in the culture that I grew up in, it's bad luck to name a child after a living relative. Like it's oh. a thing that you mustn't do. The idea is it will hasten their death. It's absolutely. It, whereas it, it's a very English tradition that you would pass on names. So when um. I had my first child, my own and my husband's family thought we might. And I was like, no, 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 no live names. No, that's a that's a thing you mustn't do. It's sort of to, to hasten leaving. And I think um, but that sense of silence, that quality of um, one of the hardest things to write, I think, and, and you see it in really great writers and you do it so beautifully here, is it's very hard to write in articulacy in the sense of ideas that we can't find a way through it. Right? Sort of that sense, the idea of what it is to be silent on something again is that something that you're interested in the work this idea about what you can't say as much as, or what you're not able to express as what as much as how we do find our way through things
1: yeah sometimes I think that you know with my work I'm like if we can if I can write or if we can talk around the things that can't, can't be articulated or defined maybe in maybe that's a form of shaping in itself like maybe all the talking we do around it kind of leaves a negative space in the middle you can kind of see the outline of the thing by that even if you can't define that space precisely
2: that's amazing what a fantastic absolutely and and I think that's something that Vivek's friends do too physically they try to create a physical space for him in which to feel comfortable and it seems to me that that's very important to him that the, the bedrooms like single spaces like rooms in a way that yeah, feels like a, but, he, but you, he, they make it feel vast. He manages to occupy these spaces completely beyond. I mean, they're, they're for him, they're, they're, they're places of experimentation. Is that Does that ring true, do you think?
1: Yeah, because I think the idea of the intimate as something that's limited is kind of what I'm, I'm pushing against there, where I'm just like, it can be intimate, it can be as simple as a bedroom, but it can be a whole world. And I think that's so much pulled from my childhood, because that's, you know, the power of imagination, so to speak, is that you can be in one little room and you can be reading books or you can be with, you know, your best friends or your, like in my case, it was my little sister. And that little room becomes so much more than just a little room. It becomes this, again, this vast space. And I think that's something that is really useful, especially for, like young queer people to lean into is this knowledge that we can make our own worlds and we can make our own families. And if you can get past the idea of limits in that sense, it gives you a lot more agency about how you can move through the world.
2: That's just, it's incredible. And I think that sort of, that mixture of the sort of profoundly sort of intimate and emotive, the deeply political, like your work, always, I think, manages to speak on all these platforms simultaneously. It also, It's just really fun. (laughs) They seem to enjoy, they they know how to enjoy themselves. I love that. And is that also reminiscent? Are these these joys that you're drawing on from your own childhood too, that sense of just...
1: Yeah, I really like writing, like, people gathered together because then the dialogue, I think, is some of my favourite parts because then I'm just like, oh, I get to write banter. (laughs) And it's so fun. You know, they're making fun of each other. They're choking with each other and and for me i think so much of the life of their interaction is in their language is in how they talk to each other and it makes it it makes the characters feel alive for me it makes me feel like you know i'm i'm eavesdropping on their little gatherings and i'm eavesdropping on their community and and i think yeah i think it's one of those things where if you can kind of see that then you have a little bit of a, a map into making it real as well, because I think a lot of young queer people are like super isolated, and this idea of being able to see what it looks like to have a community in a place where you may not think such a community exists, but I'm like, there's always community. It might be hidden, not out of shame or anything, but out of privacy and for protection, but it's there and you can tap into that and you can have this this private little bubble That I think the children have with each other where they're able to kind of flourish and be themselves and be surrounded by people who see and affirm them.
2: In that sense
1: the work is,
2: it's conjuring, you're literally conjuring a space in which these things not only happen within the work but then I think, I mean I think that's one of the most exciting things about fiction particularly at the moment is it is radically empathic, It, 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 it allows you to take people to spaces not only that they don't know they're interested in but also that they hadn't Conceived of in that way and that might be incredibly liberating and so in that sense that's sort of also playing with liminality and playing with the edge of something you're always sort of showing that it's not binary yeah. that space is that you can get inside it and play around in it
1: yeah that's that, that's definitely my favorite space I think I just I think because I live in that space so with a lot of the work I'm, I'm doing I'm trying to kind of shift the world over. It's like this Toni Morrison quote where she said, you know, I stand at the border, at the edge, declare at the center and wait for the world to move over. And I was just like, oh, yes, oh, this is great. Because when I started, you know, writing, I was so worried about, oh, I would get my stories out there or how, how I would survive in an industry like this. And I really wanted a map or a guide. And then, I found that Toni Morrison quote and like listen to her talk about these things and I was like oh I don't need a map because I'm not going anywhere I already know where I am and I can just stay there Um, and so when I write my books and it sounds simple to just like stand in one place but it's so much more challenging because there's a lot of pressure to move and to shift your work over to make it legible for other people So I try to move in the other direction and move deeper into that liminality and move deeper into like you know this non-linear blurred space in between things where there's a lot more nuance and I think it I think it benefits the readers to be able to come meet me there I'm like I'm like I know a lot of the times you know it can be challenging (laughs) I'm just like but we'll be okay we can do it
2: (laughs) you know one of the things about Vivek particularly the book as well as the character is actually it's profoundly inclusive like I I, I would be surprised if people did find it challenging I think it's the most sort of generous novel that actually you're just in you just get to be somewhere and I think that that also technically is very challenging to make something at ease when actually you know, a lot of the world, the publishing world, say so particularly, is so um, monocultural that it doesn't even see its own boundaries. It has a false sense of universality because it thinks that it's, it's mirroring itself so so frequently. That poise, that space, is that also? A, do you cherish it? Do you do you work to protect it? And is it in your work? Is it something? Be able to carve out a sort of serenity. Is that something? Yeah,
1: it's part of the center. You know, I'm like, this is the world as I experience it. This is the world as my community experiences it. We don't get to see a lot of it, you know, shown in literature or if you do, usually there's a sacrifice involved. It's like, well, okay, you can show this part, but like, let's tuck that part away. And I think that that's not reflective of what people's lived experiences are. I'm like, we don't get to kind of, fold away parts, or it's hurtful to try and fold away parts just to make it more palatable, I think, to people who are just like, well, this is too complex. And I'm like, but people are complex, you know, and people's lives are complex, and their worlds are complex. And a lot of the time, there's so many layers to it. So what does it look like to write those layers and to Mm -hmm. trust the reader to be able to engage with those layers and not run from it?
2: It's deeply cooperative with the technology of the book, right? The book is a is a deeply intimate form. It's just you on the page, you know, on the page, and then the reader with the page. No, nobody sees how you react. You can you can really interrogate things. It's a really exciting space. Would you read for us? OK, it would yes. be so wonderful.
1: Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of the Vivek chapter and a little bit of The next chapter so chapters four and i think a little bit of chapter five so chapter four is narrated by vivek i'm not what anyone thinks i am i never was i didn't have the mouth to put it into words to say what was wrong to change the things i felt i needed to change and every day it was difficult walking around and knowing that people saw me one way knowing that they were wrong completely wrong that the real me was invisible to them it didn't even exist to them so if nobody sees you are you still there chapter five after vivek died osita went to portakots and drank until the days were sabotaged in his memory he didn't tell anyone where he was going and when he got there no one cared about where or what he had come from he was tall and immaculately dark-skinned Muscled and handsome and generous with drinks, so the oil workers he fell in with were more than happy to spend time with him. There were hotel rooms and some women, and the memory of dirty glasses stacked high and teetering before they crashed into a sink and broke. Then the warped sound of people laughing. Osita watched the glass bounce. He felt carpets against his back and tasted of vileness in his mouth, as if someone had vomited into it. The girl straddled his hips and lowered her face to his, but it blurred into nothing. Thank you. The
2: idea of a poetic mystery, this idea of love as well. We were, were you interested in exploring different kinds of love because there are so many different forms of it in this book, from the maternal to the romantic. It, is love as a construct something that also gets your? I was gonna say pen itching, but I imagine it's a keyboard as opposed to <laughs> a pencil. <laughs>
1: yeah i think it's i think it was useful to kind of see the different, the different aspects of it one of the reviews i think with npr they pointed out that nobody in the book loved vivek impurely and i really loved that this idea of that like everyone's love for him was like pure and well intentioned even when it wounded him you know even the things his aunts did or his parents did like they weren't trying to hurt him, they genuinely thought they were trying to help. And and I thought that was so important because then you get to see how love can wound, you know, how it can be well-intentioned and it can still misstep and it can still harm the person that you're trying to protect. and And I hope that's, you know, I hope that's helpful for people because a lot of the times, people have a difficult time thinking that, You know if they love someone and they have the best intentions and it's impossible to harm the person or that if the person says they're harmed then now the other person is a bad person and they feel guilty and and all these things and i think sometimes it's just as simple as you can love someone and try your best and it can still wound them and you know that's i mean it's not necessarily okay but it's not something to run away from it's just a fact
2: Do you think this is probably just my sort of basically um, parental guilt? Do you think that's particularly in relation to parents?
1: (laughs) I think so, yeah. I I think it's particularly hard for parents because it's the idea of like harming their child or wounding their child is often, not in all cases, but quite often, it's so far away from what the parent's intending, you know, and And I think it's really hard for them to kind of acknowledge that the wounding is still a possibility. And I wanted to write this book that really showed the fullness of everyone's love, that could show, you know, how much Vivek's mother loved him and how he still didn't feel safe with her, despite everything she was doing. And she didn't realize it until it was too late for her to change things or to fix things and and also i wanted to like kind of touch on the idea of privacy and this idea that vivek might have kept who he was private from his mother because he just didn't want to share it not because i think a lot of for a lot of readers it was like oh you know it's such a tragedy that she didn't get to see him but then I'm like, Mate, what if he didn't want her to see him? What yeah. if he just chose this separately? And what does it look like to kind of, as a parent, deal with the fact that your child might not want to include you? Not because you did anything wrong or right, but just because they're like, this is mine. And I want it to yeah. stay mine. And I want to share it with my friends. And I want to share it with this. And I don't want to share it with you. And what that can kind of feel like as well.
2: And so interesting. And and again, sort of so empowering, these ideas about agency and about choice as opposed to feeling that it all has to lead to a certain conclusion, which are about, again, you know, certain ideas about narrative and how it's supposed to behave and what a happy ending looks like, which again you subvert just with absolute genius here. Faith is also really important though. I mean, these different strands of ideas about what faith looks like too, particularly in relation to I mean, not that the younger people aren't adults, but these the, the sort of the older generation, their ideas about, again, faith in those communities. Is that something that was really interesting
1: that you wanted to explore yeah, directly? I think, it's, I think it's part of a lot of people's makeup, and I think it's often what people turn to when they don't know what to do. You know, like with a lot of the vex parents' generation, when it came to Vivek, they really didn't know what to do and in in the absence of that clarity they turn to faith and they turn to you know the priests and they turn to the church and they're like well perhaps i can be given some insights here that i can't find in other places and and i'm i wonder sometimes what it would have been like if they just asked vivek or if they just, you know, talk to him about it. There's a point in the book where, you know, he begs them to stop trying to fix him because it's mm. it's hurting him. And what it looks like to kind of sit with someone, even if they don't understand what you are going through yet or you don't understand what does it look like to sit with them in that space of not knowing instead of trying to fix it. Whether it's fixing mm. it with faith or fixing it with something else. But this kind of a moment of stillness I think. Beautiful
2: um, and it's something that you were saying about the writing but I think it's also something that we all struggle with as humans like it's bearing and just staying with something particularly I think it's, it's sort of in this moment where we find ourselves too talking about space and ideas about safety there's a real desire I think to end the uncertainty and to move beyond even when actually perhaps that just hasn't happened trying really hard to not use the word Covid but it's going to happen at some point probably. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is obviously it's your third book, you're published around the world, do you find that when you're talking about this work in different cultures that different preoccupations tend to pop up? Are you finding that your conversations, I mean I guess it's early days with Vivek because he's not out yet except for in the UK. (laughs) Do you find as the work grows, and you're, because I know you've been doing lots of work, both at home, well, in America and and elsewhere, have the quality of the interactions changed now that people are doing things online? We were talking beforehand about how nice it is not to have to travel for events, but it makes all events more international. So are you getting a kind of different engagement?
1: Yeah, I think that's been my favourite part is that it really opens it up to a lot more people because now people can touch in from anywhere. and, And that's such a huge difference from, you know, how it was before it's a lot more accessible. And it's even more accessible for me because I'm just like, oh, this takes a little less of a toll. You know, as we're talking about, I don't have to travel as much. And I always worry when it comes to the traveling that like I can't travel, like I can't travel as much to have as much reach as I would like. And I've always consoled myself that, you know, the books have the reach that I don't have. And it's it's going to be exciting, I think, to see it kind of, out in different places and see what what people say about it so far I think one of my favorite responses to the book it pops up in like a handful of places where there's always just like one like reader who's like okay so is nobody going to talk about the incest I feel like I'm really uncomfortable with this and like no one's talking about it and I'm like that is a very valid response (laughs) Um, because people are kind of skirting around it which I think is also really um really interesting because I actually thought it would be more of a sticking point than it's turned out to be and perhaps in different cultures that might come up like I'm curious to see when it comes out in Nigeria whether that is flagged a bit more.
2: But then I think isn't that interesting because one of the things and it's going to be interesting for people in this conversation who haven't read yet hearing you use that word because one of the reasons that I wouldn't refer to it is because what the novel does is explode the idea of it being incest. It's like a loving relationship between two people who are close. And also I think it just feels really honest that very often when you're growing up, loads of people's first sexual experiences come with like, whether it's with cousins or friends of family or whatever, but, but that sense that this truth about, you do explore with the people you grow up with in different ways, whether it's your parents, best friends, kids, or whatever. That Yeah,
1: right? that's what I wanted to kind of like lean into because I think that you know, people are like, ew, cousins. And I'm just like, oh, come on. We're being a little <laughs> hypocritical here. Because in, a lot, like in so many cultures, it's not just the exploration part, but it's also like the culture of marrying first cousins. Yeah. Like, my grandparents are related to each other. I don't think they're first cousins, but they're definitely cousins of some sort. That's yeah. how they met. is <laughs> because they're related to each other. So I think that when we kind of go like, ew, ick. And pretend that this is not a thing it bothered me a little bit and I was like okay well let's pull back the carpet because for some reason we're acting like this is a big scandalous thing when really it's far more commonplace than is talked about and so I was like well let's look at it and let's look at it in a way that is just where it's treated as commonplace as commonplace as Mm. it is especially when like you said a lot of people who grow up together and, you know, you spend your holidays with the same group of people, and then all of them hit puberty at the same time. And I'm just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely some experimenting that happens there.
2: (laughs) But also, it's definitely true in my experience of the UK publishing, but also it's a different scene in the US. But it is, again, that sense that if you have a culture that is intensely and publishing is tends to be very middle class and white that's not a prevailing UK experience my experience growing up was very local and we didn't travel and we all went on holiday down the road to a caravan park where we all stayed together and it was like that was my reality my world wasn't a, a, an industry that believes it's mirroring a world when it's mirroring a version of a world and that's true for some people but actually the very sense of, this word for me is really problematic, universality, there's no such thing, and and, and what it does is to exclude, because you can't see the edge of the bubble. Exactly. And so, I, I was talking about this, I was tweeting at you about it, like this, genuinely, there's such a conversation between you and the work and Anna Burns' book, Milkman, and, and, and publishing didn't really understand that book, but the world did. Because this experience she was writing to, happens to millions and millions of people it just ha- doesn't happen to very many people in publishing who then essentially kept trying to like mow the lawn with a toaster they kept saying it's not a very good mower and you're like
1: well no it wouldn't be oh i am completely stealing that analogy that was broken <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth right like the, the world
2: gets it the industry gets in the way and the but readers completely understand
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: And here's a great question from Daniel. Daniel just wanted to ask how different the process of writing this book felt with Freshwater and Pet. You
1: know, it's the third book. Was it, was it a different process? So it's the third book published, but it's actually the second book I wrote. So I wrote it right after I wrote it the year after I finished writing Freshwater and I tried a different technique while writing it it was very much based on word count I was like I will write you know 2,500 words a day and I will write them in 500 word chunks and I will write five days a week and it was not particularly fun but it taught me a lot about how to write even when I don't feel like writing and that was really useful so it took me about four months to get through like the rough draft which I wasn't allowed to read back anything I had written before and then I reached the end and I looked over the whole thing and I was like oh this is a disaster and then it took me another two months to (laughs) edit it and kind of clean it up and I was doing nothing else in that time you know I would just wake up go to my desk and for six months that's all I did. And I got stuck in the middle, so I wrote the ending and then came back and filled out the middle um, because sometimes I think the middle of the books is always really, really hard for me. And yeah, I experimented with different ways. And so it was really useful because it taught me that the way I had written Freshwater was very specific to Freshwater. And the way I wrote Vivek right. was very specific to Vivek. And then when I wrote Pets, I was on a much tighter deadline. and That was, I think I wrote Pet in like two months, which was so stressful, would not recommend. Definitely not doing that again. (laughs) Um, And I was also moving halfway through writing it to a new place, so it was a bit chaotic. And yeah, now I've, I've reached a point where I'm like, okay, each book kind of likes something different or wants something different. And with each one, I figure out what it is in the process of writing it
2: so I was going to ask if there's a time of day but no you're intensely within that book for the
1: time period that you're writing it
2: yeah it's it's one world and then you leave it
1: and move on yeah so even if I'm not in front of the computer I could be you know taking a shower and thinking about plots or that moment right before you fall asleep where you're kind of dozing off and then I'm just like oh this is a great time to figure out this plot thing and I start daydreaming about it and and it helps to really just be immersed in it. So even when I'm not typing it out, I'm still constructing the world in my head.
2: It's so interesting hearing writers talk about that sort of emo- literary compost, like when the stuff is just mulching. <laughs> but that compost thing, when I you're totally that. not married, deeply fruitful. And in, in that way, are works... Do you sometimes have to tell a work sort of to wait? Do is, is things start trying... I know some writers find that new ideas are bubbling up and you have to sort of suppress them because you need to... Do what you're doing
1: does that uh, all the time i think i have perhaps i think i have maybe like 17 books on my list and i've written seven of them so i have about 10 to go and it's very upsetting because i would really love to skip but they're all in a queue so i'm like oh, crap, i have to write this one first and i'm on deadline for this one and then i keep thinking i'm going to move to the next one and then a new book idea comes up a lot of them come from dreams Interestingly, I can lucid dream. So I have like all these dreams that are like epic fantasy stories with magic. And I'm just like, I really want to write fantasy, but I have a couple more things in literary fiction to get through first. <laughs> that makes me like my retirement <laughs> writing. Where I'm just like, I just churn out fantasy novels. That's all I do now. <laughs> I was gonna say once you end up down that route, that's like a 30
2: book. I was gonna say cul-de-sac, but it wouldn't be. But yeah, that's, that's a lot of, once you're in a world building's
1: place, that's a serious time wow yeah it's it's intense and sometimes it makes me sad because I really want to read all the books and then publishing is like so slow that you know I am working on like you know with Vivette I finished writing it in 2016 and so on my like personal schedule I'm about four books ahead and but they haven't come
2: (laughs) out yet and that that's exponentially growing because public you're still incredible. like you're delivering books and publishing isn't catching up with your speed we're still there like it's the <laughs> backlog <laughs> I feel like whenever I talk to people who are writing and want to get published the shock of like publishing is ludicrous I know why it's so slow and I think sometimes it's a good thing but it can be very shocking when someone's delivered to think hang on a minute what do you mean it's going to be in 18 months time
1: that's I think it's especially yeah. huh. shocking when the, when the first book we're like, how will right. I survive the eighteen months? And then I deal with it by, you know, writing a lot of other books. Yeah. And then next, <laughs> thing you know, the eighteen months is a year, and then it's six months away, and then it's like, oh, your book's coming out next week.
2: But I think, and particularly with your work, with which has such, it's so generous and it's so intense that the, I feel like the um, that period of time is very necessary as a period of letting go for an author, as as the work drifts away from them uh, as readers become very attached to it because i think if it, if you're still very attached to it the pub- publishing process can be more painful and so actually something about the time is really important as a process of letting go and letting it be ready you know
1: it's a just gest- it's sort of part
2: of the gestation in a way
1: i think yeah i agree i think it's i think it's incredibly useful because the like my relationship to a book at the start of you know the editing process versus what it is by the time it's publication day, it's such a gap between that. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that gap because it also allows me to talk about the book as a work and to do mm-hmm. that with kind of more to, to do more justice to the work without and, and being for... as wrapped up in it.
2: Yeah. It, it starts to occupy a separate space. And also you have to be a tiny bit sick of it, I think. You have to be ready for it for
1: somebody else's concern. That means you're ready That's for it to like go. The time know, you get it. There, you're just like, here, take, take this book child of mine and do with it what you will. Have fun.
2: Very healthy. Now, I'm just reading Jonathan Morton, who says, if you could speak a little bit about how you maintained that space in your text for us to sit with otherness, and particularly I'm thinking of those responses to Freshwater that wanted to label it magical realism, rather than allowing it just to be real, was there pushback from editors? How did you find the
1: confidence to stick to your guns?
2: And were there texts you read from other writers that helped with that confidence?
1: So I think for me the the main thing is that for me it's not otherness because it's my it's my center. So I'm just like oh so this is where I'm coming from. And I think real like one of the hardest things of moving forward in publishing or really when I just started publishing was realizing that it was otherness for people for other people, and I was like yeah. oh. Oh, that's fascinating. (laughs) And so I, I pretty much just do the thing of I don't move. I'm just like, no, I'm, this is the center that I'm at. It doesn't have to be legible to everyone, but it is legible to the people that I am writing for. And, you know, there's an, there's an interview I read with this Indigenous writer, Leanne, I cannot pronounce the middle name, it's very long, Simpson, but she was talking about how, you know, she doesn't write for white people. She did an interview with Beyond Brand that was wonderful. And so she was saying that she doesn't write for white people and, you know, when she talks to editors or people about that perspective, and they're like, you know, well, would you want, you know, white people to kind of be included in it? And she's like, but here's the thing. She's like, white people are very welcome to read my work. But she's like, I think it's really important that they read work that does not center them. And so Absolutely. that's really the, like, that was what, reading that interview with um, how she did with Dionne Brand was really useful for me because it gave so much language this idea of like yes i am centered in my world and i'm talking to my readers and it's really important for people on the outside who to us they are the other it's important for them to kind of sit with that and be like well what does it mean when i've gone through my whole life thinking that i'm the default and then i need to work like this that's like actually you're not the default you are other to us and and i think a lot of the like response people have is to be like no I'm not other you are other and since you are other you should explain it to me it's like no like it's important to kind of be in that space and understand that you know something might not be directed from you and and I think there's for me honestly yeah there has been pushback not so much interestingly from editors with the books I've done but it usually comes around marketing like usually it kicks in when we get to like the marketing phase of it because now it's not even about the work it's about the fact that they're trying to sell a product and and I'm there you know like with Freshwater being like I understand that if we said that this was a book about mental illness that it would sell differently however no (laughs) <laughs> and, and <laughs> pushing back against that. And and I think that's really where, you know, a lot of people can hold a lot of beliefs, and I, and I mean people in the publishing industry as well, they can hold a lot of beliefs about stuff until it like butts heads with capitalism, until it becomes yeah. about the business and the bottom line and how much the publishing house is supposed to make. And that's really the test of, okay, well, are you actually going to stand behind your convictions even if you think it's going to cost you money and and I think that fear of like, oh, we're going to lose money if we do it this way really like hinders a lot of it because then I'm like, well, you'd never know because you didn't try you know you didn't try to see what it was like to market this book to people that you consider other because you were like, well yeah. they're other they're on the outside they're not going to buy it and I'm just like, well. Decenter yourself. You know, and I think that's yeah. like one thing that my work is pretty consistent about is that it challenges a lot of people to decenter themselves. And and I think that's important work for readers to be doing.
2: And I think that also you should be charging consultancy fees because essentially it's what publishing has to learn.
1: I really should, honestly.
2: <laughs> yeah. This is something you know that's coming up a great deal in debates which is you know that having to educate on top of everything else having to make people understand the choices that they're making I, there's a really fantastic uh novel called uh Jim patrol on the purple line by um a young indian novelist and, and and i talked at length with her about this idea that this was before it was with a particular publisher so that i'm not saying that her publisher did this but, like, yeah. but one of the things you have to be really careful about is that you are trying to unpack a sort of very Commonplace English idea about Indianness that we use to sell—you know, sort of like tinkly bells and elephants. Like that's the very thing this work is unpicking and, and, and challenging. You have to be really aware when you're going into these conversations that you can't have the marketing sit at odds with the very work the novel is trying to do. It can't, on the one hand, use the tropes that you're trying to unpick to get people to sort of pay attention to the work. If the world is ready for some actual challenge for some actual change for some difference from or indeed actually exactly what you say which is neither challenge or change but just something that they recognize themselves in it is all about where you sit isn't it so i agree with you wholeheartedly i put in the
1: interview with dion brand because i think it's a wonderful read highly recommend you all click on it and and read it it really changed there was a text that helped me kind of like hold my place it would Absolutely, be this interview, which I only found out about like a week or two ago, <laughs> and it's from 2018. But it, it was like a fundamental kind of shift for me in just understanding that I could like push back against publishing, you know, like I could push back against like my editors if need be, I could push back against publicity and marketing, and I could say, Hey, I understand why you're doing things because really the reason is capitalism most of the time. It's like, I understand that like white supremacy and capitalism are entrenched together in this particular way. And when I'm making work that pushes it back against both of these things, it's like, it creates a kind of like this little paradox for them of, well, what do we do, you know? And, and I'm like, well, I'm going to push you to do the difficult thing. And it is honestly like, really like i will admit that it is it has been very difficult for me because i love making the work i hate educating it feels it takes so much emotional energy from me and it feels so upsetting because i'm like white authors don't have to go through this it got to the point where i think earlier this year i was talking to my therapist about it and i was just like if there's one thing that would make me stop writing books it would actually be this It's not the books itself, but the fight to protect them when they go out into the world, the fight against like people who are in, you know, gatekeeping positions of power within the publishing industry, who are writing like, you know, anonymous reviews for the books and who are presenting themselves as objective when they're not and saying, well, my objective read of this book is the true read of the book. And I get very sensitive about it when it's pre-publication reviews, because then I'm like the reader doesn't have access to the book to make their own decisions when a book hasn't come out yet and someone's doing a review and they're talking about you know well the book is this and the book is that you are expecting the readers to trust that you are giving a fair and unbiased you know account of the book and often it's not fair and it's not unbiased there's a lot of like you know racism that they're not aware of that's coming through there's a lot of ignorance that's coming through and, and I think people are really afraid, especially when they're in gatekeeping positions in the industry, I think people are really afraid to say, I am not qualified to write on this book. Yeah. I am not qualified to address this work. I'm not qualified to critique this work because I don't even understand it. And I will do it a disservice by trying to critique it from that point of view. And so then I have to, like, engage and, like, push back and correct things and all of that. And it just feels so, like, violent and exhausting because I'm like, I just want to make work. Like, I just want to, like, be an artist and not do all this extra work. And I was like, Mm. it gets so stressful with each book. And I'm like, I have so many books coming forward that I'm like, how many more times just realistically and sustainably am I going to be able to do this before it gets to the point where I'm like, you know what, it's not even worth it to put out a book anymore, because I don't think that, I don't think that a lot of people in the industry understand how much of a toll it takes on the authors and how much it like beats our spirits down to have to protect our work and to fight for our work and then be risked as seeing as, you know, the angry Black author or like the difficult one or this and that, like there's so many layers to it. And then by the time you get to a certain point where I think I've reached that point now where I think, you know, my agents have watched me for the past, you know, five years go from being like a really scared baby writer to now I'm just like, oh, that's bullshit. (laughs) And we're not doing that. And they've been so supportive of that. And I'm really grateful for it because I couldn't do it alone at all. But I'm aware that like, I know what books I have coming out and I already know that there's going to be a lot of tension around the centers that I keep claiming over and over again and part of me has just accepted that you know what if it gets to the point where people are just like oh this author is super difficult and super particular and all these things i'm like so be it because at the end of the day my job is just to make sure that the books get out it's just to make sure that they are published so that the readers can find them and if i have to fight tooth and nail you know with the help of my brilliant agent agents to to get it done then i will but i really had to let go of this idea of being liked because i was like actually when you're working in i'm sorry i'm sorry you know, i'm going on like this whole rant when you're going working in an industry that is so like centered in whiteness and centered in capitalism pushing against it is going to upset people It is going to piss them off. It's going to upset people from the people publishing to the media that's covering it. Like, it's just going to upset a whole bunch of people. And I think I'm right now, I'm just like, okay, so I know what I need to do to kind of stay true to the work and to protect it so that it can reach the readers in the form that I intended. And what I have to focus on in the next couple of years is basically protective measures. How can I protect myself as I'm protecting the work? And how can I do this? without it you know taking so much of a toll on me which is scary
2: it must be it's scary and exhausting and it has to be that you have to be able to expect more from your publishers in the industry and one of the reason that the liberal media finds this so difficult is because the very idea of itself as being liberal means it finds it very difficult to be honest about its own failings you know people like to think of themselves as being open-minded the hardest people to show that they are closed-minded are the people who don't like to think of themselves in that category because they believe themselves to already be somehow beyond it and those hard truths, those hard truths for the industry has to be, if anything is to change, where it begins to genuinely look at itself, behave differently and to protect, but really protect and enshrine those rights because it's not the author's job, you know, it is our job to celebrate and protect. and. And to keep the work, you know, keep the energy for the work. And I think that that sort of heartfelt, that level of investment, that level of that you are paradigm shifting. Right. And and that is an exhausting thing to try and do. And it has to be that just in the same way that you're talking about your agents, but that the publishing world itself match at the very least matches that energy, that commitment, that, that rigor that care and stops trying you know and the thing I was saying earlier about you know whether it's mowing with a toaster but stops thinking that it has an understanding when it doesn't and that it constantly not only do you not need a map it doesn't have a map and if it keeps trying to map things you know old-fashioned maps use churches villages are always marked by churches that won't continue That you know the topography of our culture has to change and we have to stop trying to fix things on to a topography that is is, is outmoded. Thank you so much, Quake.
1: Louisa, this was delightful. Thank you to everyone who came. Louisa and I will have more books for you in the years to come. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.